You're listening to The Canal, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Andrew Garoppo, and thanks for joining us. On tonight's show, we'll be playing the second part of my interview with students at the Cornell Law School and the work helping Afghan refugees in the U.S. If you missed part one of the episode, you can find it by searching at the canal on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Up first, we have Community Beat with Michael Memes and Beck Legato. A guaranteed income pilot will take place in the city of Ithaca. 110 caregivers will be randomly selected to be paid $450 per month for a year. The pilot is being put together by the Ithaca Eviction Slash Displacement Defense Project and is in conjunction with Mayors for a Guaranteed Income. There is an income limit depending on the amount of people in the family. Those who would like to sign up can, when applications open this month, at hsctc.org slash IGI. Ithaca plans to welcome 10 Afghan refugees to the community, a tiny number of individuals who fled Afghanistan since August. This resettlement of the individuals is all thanks to the work of Ithaca Welcomes Refugees, or the IWR, which is a nonprofit organization originally made to help Syrian refugees relocate to the U.S. in 2015. Nine of the individuals are already in Ithaca, with the final individual planning on moving here in a few months' time. There is more potential for more individuals to come to Ithaca in 2022, but likely no more Afghans announced before the end of this year. The IWR submitted 21 applications in total to relocate Afghan individuals to Ithaca. Downtown Ithaca's 11th annual chowder cook-off happened yesterday from 12 to 4. Restaurants from all over Ithaca and Tompkins County participated. 10 tickets were $10, and each would get a small sample of chowder, which was also labeled with dietary information. This is part of the Winter Lights Festival, which includes interactive light displays, ice bars and chairs, silent disco, ice sculptures, and more. Cayuga's Waterfront Trail, which is located between the Farmer's Market and Willow Avenue, closed last Friday with an unclear reopening date. The New York State Electric and Gas, or the NWSEG, is conducting a project to do some remedial construction under contract by the Manufactured Gas Plan, or the MGP. This will include a migration barrier wall installation made of steel sheets about 40 feet into the ground, as well as welds for monitoring and recovery. The City of Ithaca and the Ithaca Police Benevolence Association have agreed to their first new labor contract since 2011. Included in the agreement was a salary increase throughout the department and a higher contribution from police officers to health insurance costs by joining the Platinum Plan. Ithaca Mayor Savante Myrick says he hopes the increased salaries will help officer recruitment and retention. The agreement was approved unanimously by the Common Council. The new contract goes until the end of 2023. Ithaca's Common Council meeting this past Wednesday provided some of the most substantial data yet on the staffing of Ithaca's police department. Area Rosario, who led the presentation, spoke on how the working group has focused on examining recommendations made for community engagement and deliberated over potential names of the new department head. 
Matrix Consulting's data analysis in the presentation had the largest impact, having analyzed 911 calls and the staffing among other service delivery data. The takeaways disputed the idea that the Ithaca Police Department is strained due to operational shortcomings, which was a claim pushed by IPD officials, among others. For Michael Memis, I'm Beck Legato. Welcome back to the Canal. I'm your host, Andrew Garoppo. It's now been over three months since the Taliban's complete takeover of the government in Afghanistan. In this time, many Afghani citizens have made attempts to flee the country and find a safe haven in other countries, including the U.S. Recently, I got the chance to talk to Cornell Law students Ethan Tavares, Jason Stewarwald, and Evan O'Neill, who are volunteering to help these Afghani refugees find asylum in the U.S. by petitioning the U.S. Customs and Immigration Services for humanitarian parole. We had the first part of this conversation on November 14th. Again, if you missed that episode, you can find it by searching Ithaca Now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Here's the second part. Uh, going off of, I guess, sponsors, uh, for some reason it says uh, the, the petitioner can't be a sponsor as well. Why is that? petitioner for their humanitarian parole i'm not sure there's a lot of weird parts of the law one of it says that you can come over if you're willing to do experimental medical treatment i guess it's it's got a lot of odd parts yeah does the petitioner not being able to be the sponsor does that mean the the right the first the um actual sponsor is not allowed to pay the $575 applicant fee, is that what that means? I believe so. It just it said that they have to either prove, well, going off, it says the sponsor, for whatever reason, can't be the petitioner, but they can, um, but obviously they have to be financially vetted. I mean, you guys probably yeah. know this. I, I, the, that's one of the limitations. It also says that they require a lot of info from them. Uh, this, you know, it says, uh, and there's also a section that says section 213 that uh, any agency that provides assistance uh, may sue the sponsor if the refugee becomes a, a public charge. Do these high barriers of of uh, the responsibility of being a sponsor uh, dissuade anybody, make it more difficult? Yeah, all the time. Mm. It's one of those things where when you ask someone to be a sponsor, you're asking them to take on some responsibility. They are, in fact, being asked to make sure that the person who's coming to the United States has somewhere to live, somewhere, some way of feeding themselves and just basic maintenance for up to, I believe, two years. And back to the lot to just, that can dissuade somebody. It's not necessarily an easy job to take on, but what we've found is that a lot of the people who choose to be sponsors understand that risk and are more than willing to do it because they see it as necessary for the public good. Like I even, I've spoken with a lot of sponsors and you can always tell who's going to be the, the type that they like, ah, no, I said I'd do it, but after you explain to me what I have to do mm-hmm. so much. Yeah. But most of the time, they're more than willing to take on that uh, extra burden because they know it's someone's life on the line. Wow, that's really powerful. It must be pretty heartwarming. Um, I guess, uh, let's see what else we got to. So, I guess it's also worth noting that um, organizations can be sponsors. And that's something that we've been um, trying to utilize as well, like churches themselves to sponsor people, because sometimes that feels less daunting um, 
to, to ask an organization that has financial structures in place and an individual to support a family. Uh, and I think this is also an interesting place to note that we as a project have kind of run into this ethical issue um, in terms of finding sponsors because we work, you know, as, as law students and um, legal professionals to advocate zealously for our, our clients. Um, but that means that we can't really be asking people for money and explaining it to them because we have we have stake in this. We want our clients to have sponsors. It's hard for us to objectively uh, explain that. So that's something that we've been kind of fiddling with and trying to figure out ways around that ethical point. Well, if I was to say at the uh, points in this that, you know, people should send some donations and where, you know, I'm sure I don't, I couldn't. <laughs> You're all lawyers. I won't get sued, right? I'll be sure to put that in. <laughs> Uh, so I guess when the um, when the refugees finally get here, uh, how do they how do they, like how do they tend to fare? How do they seem to adjust? So we, right now we really in our clinic itself we really don't have as many people who've already arrived. But I've been working with some others who have, and oftentimes it depends on where they get resituated. Uh, there are currently families who are residing in ex-military bases in uh, outside of Philly. And they are kind of just staying in camps until they can get resettled somewhere else. Mm. A lot of the benefits that they've been able to receive, a lot of the assistance have come from uh, private institutions like Ithaca Welcomes Refugees that provide uh, clothing, food, and other amenities that they just would not get if left to their own devices simply on the benefit of the U.S. government. Mm. But in other circumstances, they've made themselves members of the community and they work really hard in order to get people to understand the circumstances that they're in. These are regular people and they find work, they do everything they can to live as normal life as they can in spite of the circumstances that they're in. That's powerful. Can you give some examples, obviously not giving out names or anything, but you know, you paint a picture of these people and some of their personal, you know. I can give one example. Okay. There's a man that I know whose family is still over there. He came here maybe a year ago. At the time he was, he came, things were stable. He was able to arrive pretty comfortably. And him and his son are, his son is as American as all of us at this point. He speaks English. He listens to hip hop. He stays out late and annoys his dad. He's He's integrated into the community so completely that he could not. If you were to tell, ask me, had this person survived a war zone for all those years, I wouldn't have been able to point it out. Like you wouldn't have noticed. Mm -hmm. And now, and the father, he works a regular nine to five. This isn't a different. They're not different because they're refugees. They're different, or different kinds of people. They're not wrong. They're not. Bad. It's there's, there's a lot of this talk in the press about how these people are going to fundamentally change the fabric of America and all that nonsense. These are just people who are trying to make the best out of a bad situation, and many of them are just here to live regular lives like any other person. Yeah. So when you hear from these families, especially those who've already arrived, who describe just the day-to-day -day mundanities of working at like a at a hotel or at a supermarket, or working at the local ice rink because this person had never seen snow before and had never really ice skated and always wanted to ice skate. So he decided, why not take a job at an ice rink? At least he get some free time on the skates. All of that 
makes you quickly understand that despite the distances between us, despite everything that we they've gone through, they're still we're all the same. And, and that's all they want is the chance to live a regular life free from conflict. That's very well said. Thank you. Uh, what are what are some of the main reasons that the Taliban are targeting these these refugees? Well, um, a lot of them have to do with either political or social or ethnic reasons. Um, I know one of my clients is ethnically, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but he's an ethnicity that they do not like. Um, and people are targeted just for that. There have been massacres carried out on specifically Hazara people and that stuff like that happens all the time over there and it is only getting worse as the Taliban seizes control. Um, and uh, another reason is for political and uh, social leanings. I, I have a client who runs a theater program that it raises women's voices and teaches women how to activate their own voices in theater. And because of that, on its own, he is a he is under threats from the Taliban, um, which is yeah more of the political and social reasons. But if you're a woman in Afghanistan right now, it's pretty much bad across the board. And for men, if you're not the exact type of ethnicity and political and social leanings that they like, then you're also an enemy for them. Do they ever, I'm sorry, go please, please. uh, Yeah, also that, um, I know that Evan mentioned that um, the P2 is a different path, but um, we also do have, you can apply for humanitarian parole simultaneously with other um, longer term uh, legal uh, permanent residencies. So a number of people I work with have um, ties to I cut out for a second there. <laughs> um, that have ties to uh, the yeah. Um, the number of the, the people that I've been working with have different ties to uh, the United States um, that put them at a, a extremely heightened risk, and they're afraid that they will not have their um, the different things that they're applying for, whether that be asylum, SIB, P two, whatever. Um, they will not be processed in time for them to get out. Hmm. So they kind of fall in this uh, gulf between the, the people who've worked with the military and, and have that so the program and humanitarian parole, and they work with the government, but not, I guess, the military, maybe, or something like that. Well, sometimes they, they are the people who work with the military, and they just, they're just trying to see, they, can get they throw in all the darts at the board and see which one hits first, um, is the humanitarian parole is, is can happen faster, but it is not um, a long-term solution. So um, if we have clients who are eligible for different types of more permanent residencies, that's something we include in the applications. And it's also something that if we have the ability to get that process started as soon as possible, um, it helps It helps their HP application and it also helps them um, solidify their status sooner. Yeah. That goes directly into that, that, that kind of answers, but I guess to expand on is that yeah, it is a temporary program. So, um, what are what are the, do most of them 
uh, hope to gain citizenship in America or, or find a, another country that would also be willing to take them? Or how do they, how's that? How do you guys deal with that? So that's been a question that we've been talking about a fair bit in the clinic. And right now, of course, the focus is trying to get them out of Afghanistan. But the next steps that they will take will be deciding where, what they want to do. Uh, humanitarian parole only lasts two years, which leaves them the option of applying for more permanent asylum or, or reapplying for humanitarian parole based on circumstances. Or even on top of all of that, choosing to go to another country with an application through them. There's a, there's a lot of options available to them if they want to seek a more permanent status. But when they arrive here, that's more when we will start taking a look at that. So we're still trying to figure out how exactly we're going to go uh, through that process, but it's going to vary from family to family. One step at a time, right? Yeah, cross that bridge when you come to it. Uh, can you guys uh, tell me a little bit about some of the most rewarding parts of doing this kind of work? Yeah, I mean, the rewarding part is being able to do it, honestly. I see it as sort of a privilege that I go to this school and that I'm able to help in the way that I am um, in a legal context because we're the only people that can do the legal portions of these documents. We're the only people that can see these clients and help them get asylum in the United States and help them get away from these terrible situations that they're in. Uh, that to me is just being a part of that fight is part of, is mostly the rewarding part for me. Um, even if we don't get to see necessarily successes, uh, a lot of these people just to know that somebody's working on their behalf, just that somebody cares about them somewhere out there in the world. Um, and, to be that person is extremely rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, kind of piggybacking off that, I, um, you know, kind of off of what Ethan was saying too before, these people, the clients that I've worked with and I've gotten to interact with, and you know, we meet very regularly with our, a lot of our clients, um, have I've built meaningful relationships with them. They're wonderful people. Um, you know shared stories, laughed, I've, I've uh, you know, played with their kids. Like it's, it's wonderful to have connections with these, just they're, they're wonderful people. And I am of the firm belief that being a lawyer um, and specifically being a public interest lawyer is, it's a lot, it's more than just practicing law. It's, it's caring about and caring for people. And I think building those relationships and being able to be an ear and a source of support and, and um, sometimes security and being able to provide our professional skills um, is is really important and it's a key part of our job Definitely. and it goes both ways to provide that. And just to echo what everyone else has said, it's those moments where you get to, to kind of just speak with your client as just two people. Uh, you never, I think me and one of my clients had like a 30 minute conversation about soccer and that made it all feel much more like, okay, this isn't just some name on a piece of paper. This isn't someone very exchanging emails with. No, this is a human being. This is a person. This is a person who likes the, uh, who likes uh, Madrid, like the Madrid soccer team. And his son is in high school and he likes to figure skate. 
it's all those that opportunity to go and kind of go meet person to person has been incredibly rewarding. And of course, it's this is we are only doing us the smallest bit that we can. Essentially, there's still so much more that needs to get done. But being able to do that little bit is at least something that we can say that we did that we at least tried. It's amazing. It really is. Huh? Don't underestimate you guys. I've been doing doing a lot. Uh, now, if uh, you were in a position to be, uh, I guess, the powers that be that kind of control this process, what about it would you change uh, so that it might be easier or more efficient? How much time do you got? <laughs> <laughs> more funding. More funding? That was a good start. Yeah, more than six people staffing the USCIS office. Mm. Quadruple the budget and please hire more case officers. Jesus. Mm. Not enough? Oh, I guess it <laughs> Well, I think the last I'm sorry, that we heard was 2000. Normally, when I normally hear they process 2,000 HP applications, and this year they've already received over 20,000. Um, and uh, have not increased budget or staff accordingly. So, um, hmm. yeah, that would be, we could change that, but hopefully it could cost the past It's interesting because in the past, well, the program itself got started in the 50s for refugees from Hungary, political dissidents, and since then it's been, the government has has stepped up after the Korean War and Vietnam. They took more active roles in getting refugees over here, but not so much this time around. What do you think that's, why do you think that is? I think the situation in the Middle East has been one of the most confounding and complicated situations that we've had politically um, in our nation's history. I mean, like you said, it's the program started in the 50s. It's not even that old when you compare it to our country's history or world history at large. So, I mean, I think ultimately there's a lot to be said for uh, political powers that be not necessarily taking the initiative that they should. But I think if more Americans cared about these issues um, and spoke to their representatives about it, there are some Congress people that are, have been very good with advocating for refugee rights, like the Justice Dems. Um, and, but uh, if more people cared about these issues, I think on the ground, if we saw more people talking to their representatives and everything, I think we could see a big, big shift in how it changes. Yeah, piggyback off of what Evan said, essentially, it's really easy to kind of ignore what's happening if you're here in the States, because it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's directly affecting you. Mm-hmm. But there are hundreds of thousands of people in probably the worst situation on Earth at moment. And it's the only way that we'll see any sort of change in that is if people start pressuring their local representatives to actually start caring, to start doing the hard part, which is pushing for funding to USCIS, pushing for more active participation in flights, getting out, any sort of movement to try to get people out of Afghanistan or at least provide them support once they arrive here. 
So I guess that that kind of uh, goes right into uh, just anybody listening, uh, what what they could do to to make a difference besides uh, calling their representatives. Very important. I mean, uh, if people wanted to make donations or or try and volunteer. Um, what what advice would you have for them? I know you guys said earlier there's a little legal stuff there, so if I can rephrase it the right way, let me know. I, the big things that I would say is that contact your congressman, contact your local representative, tell them that you want to support getting Afghanis out of Afghanistan and supporting humanitarian parole cases and encouraging them to fund more, give more funding to USCIS, emergency funding to USCIS. Hmm. It's paramount that we can get these cases processed so that we can start getting people here because oftentimes they can't receive travel documents without that approval. Not oftentimes. They cannot receive travel documents without USCIS approval. Second, if you are looking to donate, uh, IWR, Ithaca Welcomes Refugees, has put up another campaign to raise more money for more legal fees. We have another set of cases of about 19 to 21 people who are coming to the United, who need to come to the United States because of threats on their lives. And so that campaign is happening tomorrow. Anyone who would like to donate, please just look up Ithaca Welcomes Refugees. We will gladly beg. We need the money, and it's the only way we'll get any of the work that we're trying to get done finished. And of course, if anyone is has any sort of legal background or understanding, if they reach out to Professor Yerler, whose email is on our on the website for the Afghan clinic, we will add them to the volunteer list, and we will try to keep them in the loop so that as we get more and more cases, which Unfortunately, we keep getting more and more cases. We're going to need all the help we can get. So, yeah, I guess that's all I can really plug for people who want to help. Bake sales to raise uh, funds for uh, legal fees would also be nice. And anything yeah. we can do to raise the money for these legal fees, because that's kind of the main burden that we've had trying to get through. So. Yeah. Yeah, Working with like your local churches and whatnot, you guys said seem to be somewhat successful. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Any nonprofit organization, um, then yeah. Um, I would also add, I don't know if we're still looking for translators, but if you have anyone who, who's listening, who speaks um, any of the dialects that are spoken in Afghanistan, uh, please reach out to us. We can use your language skills. Um, and I think also, um, I think you know, we talked about this earlier, that this process doesn't stop once people get here. Um, like you've been saying, there's there's lots of Afghan refugees who are in in, in ex-military force in, in basically encampments, and there are organizations who are um, providing aid once people are here and helping them get situated and helping them integrate into the community. Um, and so if you're not someone with you know legal skills, but you still really want to get that hands-on work. Um, you can find it. There is there is no shortage of work to be done. Certainly. All right. Well, uh, unless you guys have anything else to add, I want to thank you so much for your time. And uh, it's truly amazing work you're doing, and it's it's very important. It's literally life or death. It's there's a it's time is of the essence. That's all for tonight's edition of Ithaca Now.
You can listen to all our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past shows, you can follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear this show anywhere, anytime. Also subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Maynard, WICB Station Manager, Connor Hibbert, and Program Director, Lou Barron. Thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director, Amadri Seth, with assistance from News Managing Director, Jordan Brooking, News Production Director, Beck Legato, and Social Media Coordinator, Emma Creston. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dunn Biff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We'll be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Andrew Garoppo, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.